just a few things if you look at your uh, bulletins. Um, if you look at, at the inside page, uh, you'll see Pelas Doras Deste Mundo. Um, it's going to be sung first in Portuguese. We're going to do the same thing. I love uh, Brian's saxophone playing, and I think it's so prayerful that we're going to let him begin this prayer again with a solo. Uh, and then um, Jessica uh, Figueroa is a student here. Uh, she's not from Brazil, but she's willing to jump in and sing Portuguese. So she's going to sing it in Portuguese first. Uh, and then we will all sing that. The reason I, you can sing from the hymnal, but you'll notice that when you have two languages, and then sometimes three languages in, in a bulletin, and you get repeat marks, it just sometimes, it's hard to find where you need to be next. So if you're a good person for learning by ear and you don't need the notes, just listen to the saxophone, listen to Jessica, and then you've got the words right here in your bulletin if you'd like to sing the English from the bulletin. Of course, you can sing whatever language you would like. Um, turn in your hymnals to number, uh, actually, let's go to 327. It's, um, it's the psalm of the day. I promised you a psalm every day. And we're actually going to sing the refrain in Portuguese every time. And I've asked Jessica just to speak uh, line by line so we can practice our Portuguese. All right, Jessica, would you? O choro. Let's try that. Let's do that again because this is the most interesting phrase. One more time. Next phrase. Uma noite Dancing and not singing? Here's the floor. Uh, enjoy. Uh, let's go uh, turn in your hymnals now to 291. How firm a foundation? 
Somebody volunteered somebody to dance, it sounds like. Uh, We're not holding you back, Daniel. <laughs> so um, when we get to verse 3 in How Firm a Foundation, uh, and I didn't mention Michael's name yesterday. Michael is just somebody who turned up in this group, and he's a fabulous piano player. He's also uh, a, a wonderful choir conductor. So he's going to do a little conducting when we finally get to this one. When we get to verse 3, when through the deep waters, there's a way to kind of feel the deep waters if we sing in around or canon. Um, give me a C, Michael. Mm -hmm. Let's everybody sing verse three. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, just unaccompanied. When through the deep waters I call thee to. Hang on, hang on. Play with us, Michael, because the notes are a little bit different here than what you've memorized from your own hymnals. Here we go. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not. Okay, see what happens if you take that and we're going to start here, and then this half of the room is going to start two beats later. Just see what happens. This is practice. Here we go. Went through. When through. Good, that's good. So when we get to that verse, verse three, uh, remember, we're gonna sing in canon. You'll know that we're doing something different because Michael's gonna come up here and he, we're not gonna miss a beat. It's gonna be when through, when through. You're, you're, you sing so beautifully, uh, you all pastor, preachers, choristers, uh, that I just have to um, give you a little bit more to do. Now I want to say a little bit about our closing song which is also our opening song. It's a song from Brazil. Um, and when we went into pandemic mode here, one thing we did when we were completely online is we just had members of our community talk about a favorite song. And then we would have somebody sing it um, in a recording or in person. Um, and this is a way of just kind of getting through and sharing and learning and uh, learning about scripture, learning about songs, learning of traditions from the church. One of the people who came and said, I have a song to share is a, a professor, Raimundo Barreto, who's from Brazil. And I went and listened again to his sharing of the song. And here's some things that Raimundo said about this song. I asked him, you know, what are your earliest memories of this song? And he responded, my earliest memories come from a very difficult time in Brazil. 21 years of dictatorship, of military dictatorship, which was a time when we were, <clears throat> when free speech was oppressed, when people could not talk about social issues at all. And in the churches, many of the churches, they actually embraced this environment and they became silent. That was the up with. We talked about salvation as something that was otherworldly. In the front of my church, there was a sign that said, where will you spend eternity? And that was all that mattered. I'm someone coming from a very poor part of Brazil, 
And so this hymn impacted me when I first heard it. And the melody was Brazilian, and now we are singing something that is our own. The person behind it is João Dias, a Presbyterian pastor who was known at the time because he had been the president of a Presbyterian seminary, a position from which he had been removed, partly for bringing up issues of justice for the hungry and for the illiterate. There were associations with uh, liberation theology that just were not going to be uh, tolerated at this, at this seminary. He continues, Diaz fled Brazil, and that's how he came to Princeton Seminary in the late 60s. And it was here at Princeton Seminary that he wrote this hymn. The song became a hymn of a new church, the United Presbyterian Church of Brazil. And today it is a kind of hymn for ecumenical movement, liberation movement, people involved in church, society, social justice initiatives. It is now sung everywhere from Catholics to Presbyterians to Baptists, Pentecostals, Episcopals. Everybody sings the song now. It is a song that connects us to the reality around us. So we'll hear the song twice. First, I've asked Jessica to sing it in the original language in Portuguese, and Raimundo gave us a, a, a literal translation so we can follow it. And then at the closing of the service, uh, we'll sing it again. We'll sing it all together, then in English, the translation I worked on. In a more free translation, um, these oppressions take on new guises in every generation. And, uh, and so we continue to sing about the realities around us. Let us worship.
All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When, when we cry,
Pour out your spirit upon us, right here, right now, in the reading and preaching of your word, that being taught by you, our hearts and minds may be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness, through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Wow, it's a joy to follow that. <laughs> and let's just thank our worship leaders, Mark Mattel, and for the beautiful praise team. And let's just... Alfredo, Alfredo thank you. One of my fondest memories as a MDiv student and a PH student who had lived here for quite a long time <laughs> is the worship here at Chapel. And I think having gone through pandemic together in various parts of the world, it is a gift to give our thanks and praise in the flesh, to use our mouths to sing, uh, to be able to do this together, to look at each other, and to rejoice in God together. So let's, I just praise God for that. Will you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all our mouths and all our hearts be pleasing to you, O rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Speaking truth to power. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Hear now the reading of God's word. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For what credit if, to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly? If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Resist the social order. Take down the patriarchy. These are cries that inspire protests and challenge the status quo. You will hardly find crowds railing around the call to submit to your masters or endure unjust suffering. The modern West concern for being one's own master and protecting one's own personal rights are vastly different from the current concerns expressed in the passage that I just read. Here, the letter urges believers in subordinate positions to endure pain for doing what is right in order to gain God's approval. So how can we preach an empowering message on a passage that seems to sanction and even spiritualize suffering? Rather than skip this, which I was tempted to do, I decided to try it with you. In order to preach from what is known as the letter's household code, it helps to understand the sociopolitical structure of the Roman Empire and of household relationships in the ancient Roman society. So the Roman Empire was socially and economically hierarchical. It was a very, there was a very small ruling elite that held great power wealth, status, and the Roman economy, it was a slave economy. You could say that the Roman elite, however, were equal opportunity slaveholders. 
but they didn't base their acquisition of slaves on race. Slaves could be war captors from any land that they conquered. Those born into slavery, you could get slaves if you're born into slavery, or abandoned and exposed children were picked off the streets and often made into slaves. They were those who were seized and sold by traffickers, and adults could be enslaved as a result of debts. Now, how a slave was treated and was allowed to live varied very significantly as slave conditions depended on their masters, their skills, the slave skills, the slave's gender, attractiveness, and physical strength. We have evidence for both the brutal treatment of slaves, including repeated rape, as well as instances of genuine care and affection. But make no mistake, a slave is still a slave is still a slave. A household slave in particular lived under the thumb of the master. And this meant that they were under the master's gaze and subject to the master's whims, moods, and possibly even their favor. A large Roman household might comprise of parents and children, extended family members, and other dependents, such as slaves, who engage in household-related activities. And because the household involved such a numerous array of roles and activities to function properly, it was understood as like a microcosm of the larger society, the empire writ small. Subordinates, like slaves and wives, who threaten the stability of the Roman household also threaten the stability of the Roman state. So like many other Greco-Roman moral writings, we have four New Testament letters that contain passages with instructions for particular groups of people within Christian families or households. However, in 1 Peter, it's to people in unchristian pagan homes. But the author is still concerned, those authors are concerned with how they are to treat members of their household. But in 1 Peter, how are these people to survive? Since they are similar to legal moral codes of conduct, these texts are often called household codes. So just some background here. Now, non-Christian examples of household codes, they tend to focus on the way slaves and children and wives should respond and obey their masters, fathers and husbands, respectively. So they don't address adult men. They don't say how adult men are supposed to treat slaves, children, or wives. Thus, it is kind of surprising. It's interesting that these household codes in, in books like Colossians and Ephesians and 1 Peter include injunctions to fathers and husbands. That doesn't make them easy. I'm just, just telling you that, that that is interesting. Now, the fact that slaves are addressed in household codes is nothing new. I've just explained that. But how slaves are regarded is something different, especially in the letter of 1 Peter. The main focus in 1 Peter's household code is not on how socially subordinated believers are to behave within Christian households, but how they are to survive and to remain faithful while remaining within pagan households. So first Peter writes to those who have become foreigners and exiles to the dominant society because of their conversion. And I talked about this on Sunday and yesterday. But he also pays special attention to the most vulnerable among his addressees, actual slaves and wives in unbelieving households who are in a double bind as a result of their conversion. So think about this. Slaves had to deal with the precarity and hazards of being subject to their masters on the one hand, which they've always been, and on the other, the precarity and hazards of being part of a strange, 
foreign or religion or superstition, as thought by others, associated with the name of Christ. Our author understands, like some of you do, that there is a faithfulness in survival. But to survive, those with their backs up against the wall also have to be wise. So the letter also offers strategies for how to survive faithfully. Howard Thurman, in his 1949 masterpiece, Jesus and the Disinherited, sees those oppressed, marginalized, and harassed by the dominant society as the best models of what it means to be Christ-like and as more clearly following in the steps of Christ. So what Thurman saw communicated by Jesus in the Gospels, Dennis Edwards, New Testament scholar, he sees as being communicated by 1 Peter. The letter, as Edwards explains, is written primarily to those who are relatively powerless in society, including slaves and women. And it's the socially marginalized and oppressed followers of Jesus who most clearly exemplify the character of Jesus. The author doesn't pity or shame them, but rather reminds them of the honor they will receive from God. So, a little review. As a result of new birth, all Christians have a radically different set of values and behaviors. They have a new eschatological orientation that doesn't take them out of this world, but actually puts them in more contact and conflict with the world. Case in point, slaves as subordinate members of the household were expected to participate in the worship of the household gods. I talked to you about that. But even they had to help the master in these rituals. Who's going to carry around these elements? The mere suggestion that slaves could refuse to worship the gods of their masters grants that slaves had some moral agency, more than their masters would have liked or permitted or agreed to. The letter assumes that Christians, slave or free, possess the moral discernment and agency to do what is right and endure unjust suffering as a result. Although believers' social circumstances may change, their consciousness of God changes their perception of the situation. The main thrust in the passage of verses chapter 2, 18 through 20, is not pleasing or appeasing one's master, but gaining God's approval by doing what accrues credit or is commendable or pleasing in God's sight. Now, because the author knows that what pleases God won't always please one's master, he is at pains to encourage slaves to patiently endure pain, literally beating, that results from righteousness' sake, not from their own mistakes. Now, please understand, in 1 Peter, suffering and endurance have no value in and of themselves, as evident in how the letter distinguishes in verses 19 through 20 between deserved and undeserved suffering. Getting one's just desserts has nothing to do with being Christian. Suffering unjustly for doing right by God, however, is a decidedly Christian characteristic. Now, for slaves, suffering is no abstraction. Disobedience or perceived insubordination could lead to death. The author is not interested in making martyrs of his addressees. Shively Smith even goes so far as to say that, quote, the letter forbids 
Christians from drawing undue attention to themselves that can lead to martyrdom, end quote. And quote, never encourages opposition leading to martyrdom, rather to, it advocates compliance and obedience as a strategic measure to avoid execution, end quote. Now the fact that First Peter addresses slaves first in the household code and does so at length is significant because it's so unexpected and unconventional. Slaves were an afterthought in the Greco-Roman household. You're not concerned about how they're to, you know, what they're, about their endurance, etc. Masters were told how to treat slaves, not slaves how to treat their masters. I think First Peter does this. He emphasizes and puts slaves first because slaves had so little socio-political power in the first place and bore the brunt of undeserved suffering in the Roman household. For him, the Christian slave's response to affliction is instructive for all members of God's household who must also find the courage to remain faithful even if they are abused for it. Now think about what Peter's saying here. When Christian slaves suffer at the hands of their masters for doing what is right, it's not because of their moral failure or uppity disposition. Rather, it's a reflection and a result of the master's moral failure and cruel disposition. So slaves in 1 Peter serve as the clearest models of what it means to be Christ-like and follow in his steps. Why? Because Jesus, too, suffered unjustly and cruelly, yet remained faithful. And all believers are to take their cues from slaves and follow in Christ's steps. Christians are called to suffer for doing good in order to gain God's approval because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you uh, should follow in his steps. So the language of example or pattern, which uh, it has to do with being copied, like a pattern, like a, like if, does any of you sew? I do not, but you know, like those patterns that you follow or steps or footsteps. It paints a really tangible image of discipleship. Christ leaves his followers with a moral paradigm and a previously trodden path to take that will not lead them astray, although it may put them in harm's way. So drawing on Isaiah 53, 1 Peter identifies Jesus as a suffering servant in order to show how Jesus models innocent suffering in ways that are both paradigmatic and atoning. Now, 1 Peter concentrates on the verbal aspects of Jesus' exemplary suffering. Christ committed no sin and no deceit was found on his lips, on his mouth. He did not return insult or suffering with insult or threat, but rather he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. This strategy is one of resistance, not passive resignation or suppressed indignation. Resistance to sin and enduring trust in God is only possible because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Although disciples, they're not capable, we are not capable of emulating Christ's suffering when he bore our sins in his body on the cross. His atoning activity enables us to bear the wrongs done against us in ways that please God. If not those with political and socioeconomic power over us, that's a possibility, but that's not the goal. First Peter's strategy for coping with unjust suffering then continues 
Despite all that I'm saying here, it continues to be difficult. It continues to remain troublesome for readers, particularly African Americans and women. It does not question the legitimacy of the Roman Empire slave economy, nor attempt to take down the patriarchal structure of the household. It doesn't address the sanctity of free speech and explicitly speak to the prophetic role of speaking truth to power. But 1 Peter does give strategies for how those with limited socioeconomic or political agency to speak truth to power and also leaves us with implications for how we today, who have far more freedoms and personal agency than the author could ever have imagined, to respond to unjust suffering and broken systems. So first, the letter challenges those with more socio-political and economic power and agency to stop making martyrs of those who are already marginalized and subordinated. I'll put that more plainly. Don't make all the women and people of color do all the work of increasing racial awareness in your congregations and the work of racial reckoning, reconciliation, and healing, or the work of community outreach and peacekeeping. We have to commit to the work, do the work, and share in the work. Secondly, the letter offers a strategy of nonverbal resistance that is patterned after Jesus. It speaks to the power of non-retaliation and to the strength required to wield our words in ways that honor God. Now, this is kind of like, what are you saying, don't speak? Well, this is not to say we cannot use actual words and speech to challenge the evil forces that work around us. As Dr. Juan Floyd Thomas said this morning in reference to W.E. Du Bois, we need ministers and people who do a lot more than what they say. We need to do a lot more than what we say. And we say a lot. We're preachers. For those of us who are so used to having a say, and who say an awful lot, perhaps we need to use silence as a way to posture ourselves to listen and learn, as a way to stay in the holy discomfort long enough to be changed by those whom we're hearing. It takes a while. Lastly, but not least, the letter encourages us to pay attention to how we wield and use words, especially when words are leveled against us or when you're on the receiving end of criticism. Now, if you've been a pastor or preacher for at least a month, you know what it means to be on the side of criticism and for half a year of slander. It is a painful reality. We can all commiserate after. I, for one, I hate to be misunderstood, but worse, I hate to be misconstrued. To respond to slander with silence is hard. To respond with slander or to slander with truthful and graceful speech may be even harder. The temptation we all have, I think, and what we see prevalent in the way the way news is media is, is outlets convey information, is what Stephen Colbert calls truthiness. You know, saying as little of the truth as possible in order to pass off what we say as true enough. It doesn't take a lot of research or background checking, footnotes, or any knowledge, really. 
Truthiness refers to valuing the freedom of speech over the truthfulness of our speech. It also is a way of valuing what we say over the way we say it. It's the opposite of speaking truth and love and speaking love and truth. But through the example of Jesus, who demonstrated faithful, oh, through the example of Jesus demonstrated in the faithful response of slaves who are subject to, to unjust suffering, 1 Peter teaches us that the substance of our response is not reflected in how quickly we can manipulate language to get what we want or hurl insults back at those who insult us. It's not reflected in our retaliatory speaking ill of those who are ill-treating us or in our witty sarcasm and jabs. Rather, it's reflected in the integrity of our actions and our awareness that we live in service to a God who will have the last word. Thanks be to God.
not an accident, but an action. It is a word whispered with the wind, a dream of the unbent back, the unchained limb, the unbruised body, the untroubled mind, and the unbroken spirit. It is a home of one's own and a moment of rest. It is a blessed and beloved name bestowed upon all of God's children and their children's children at long last and for always. We each humbly ask you in our own form and fashion for a world where the air is safe to breathe and the water is clean to drink and where our neighbors study war no more and no one has to be a refugee in their own land, a prisoner in their own home, or a slave in their own mind. As we prepare to live into the purpose that you created for and called us into, we give thanks that hope is a song we sing with a weary throat. So please give us a song of hope in a world where we can loudly and proudly sing it. Please give us a song of faith and a people to believe in it. Please give us a song of kinship and kindness in a country where we can live it. Give us a song of hope and love and a humble heart to fully hear it. And all those who would say, Amen. Amen.
I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.